I want to invite you now to hear a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And you can follow along in your own Bible if you brought it. There are also Bibles in front of you, and we are an electronic-friendly church, so if you want to bring this up on your phone or iPad, feel free to do that as well. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and again, I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, that's an interesting sentence, isn't it? (laughs) Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by to the other side. But the Samaritan, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there was a young farm boy who overturned his wagon of wheat on the road. And the farmer who lived nearby came to investigate. He said, hey, Willis, forget your troubles for a while and come and have dinner at my house. Then I'll come back and help you turn your wagon back over and get all the wheat back on. That's very nice of you, the little boy said, but I don't think Dad would like me to do that. Oh, come on, Willis the farmer insisted, and after a little coaxing, the little boy finally said, okay, I will come to have a meal with you, but I'm telling you, my dad is not going to like it. After a hearty dinner, Willis thanked the farmer, and he said, I feel a lot better now, but I know that dad is gonna be really upset. And the farmer said, don't be silly. I know your dad. He's a nice guy. I don't know why you think he would be upset. By the way, where is he? And the little boy said, 
he's under the wagon. <laughs> so Willis and the Good Samaritan farmer lived in a very different day than we do today. While we all want to be good neighbors, the meaning of neighborliness has changed drastically as the culture has shifted away from community and toward what some sociologists call cocooning. Prior to people having telephones, dropping by for an unannounced visit was customary and even, to a certain extent, necessary. It was how people stayed in, in touch and checked in on each other. Homes had a public space for social matters and a private space for family matters, and visits from neighbors were expected. And then there were a lot of social rules that developed around that practice. For example, people knew not to drop in before the lunch hour. Formal, formal visits lasted for about a half an hour, and the guests did not remove their coats. And if you violated these kinds of customs, it was considered to be bad manners. But all of this has changed, hasn't it? Even though we enjoy having lots of contacts in our phone and lots of friends on Facebook, most people today would never drop by a friend's house without calling them or texting them to make sure that it's okay. Otherwise, it may be experienced as an unwanted interruption. There are exceptions in rural towns and in some minority neighborhoods where people still welcome drop-ins, but most places today have less face-to-face -face interaction as they more heavily rely upon their cell phones and computers using apps to send and receive electronic messages. And as convenient as this may be, something is lost in translation, isn't it? And this is the case even when we can see each other using apps like FaceTime or Zoom. Without face-to-face -face interactions, we can't look into each other's eyes. We can't shake someone's hand. We can't smell the coffee brewing from the living room or get a feel for someone's kitchen. And we can't hear what's being said in moments of shared silence. And the importance of all these kinds of things has been pressed upon my heart in really powerful ways over the last couple of years as our family and our church has had to navigate the challenges of COVID. As the old saying goes, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. <laughs> and I really miss in-person visits. I used to go and make face-to-face -face visits with a lot of our seniors who were shut in, but when COVID broke out, I had to stop doing that because they were among the most vulnerable people in our church. And I miss that. I miss handshakes. I miss all of the hugs that I received every Sunday after church as people said, Mark, that was a great message. I miss sharing meals with my friends and my family here at the church. I miss seeing people I love in the church on Sunday morning as more and more people have gotten into the routine of watching from home. And if you're watching from home, I'm so glad that you're here 
but I do miss that face-to-face interaction. I miss holding hands in a big circle in the aisle here after the service for the benediction. You guys remember when we used to do that? And I miss the new ministry that we started right before COVID broke out called Dinners for Six, where we gathered in each other's homes and shared meals and had great conversations. It was during that time and in those spaces that I was able to get a lot closer to some of you. And don't get me wrong, I am so grateful for the financial ability and for the resources of our staff and volunteers who who have allowed us to keep our ministries going by bringing them online. But again, so much is lost when we can't meet in person and do the kinds of things that we know build stronger relationships and friendships. And do you know the number one reason why people come to church for the first time? In the vast majority of cases, it's not because there's awesome preaching. You can get that online. It's not because there's awesome music. You can get that online or at a concert, right? It's not because the prayers are somehow magical and more effective when people are in the building, right? We can pray anytime. The number one reason why people walk through our doors, especially for the first time, is because they are looking for a friend. They want to know that they're not alone, that there are people who are in life with them. There's just something special about being together, and we read this in the book of Acts too, of being physically together, about taking the time to talk eye to eye that makes such a God-graced difference in the life of our community. But that's exactly what didn't happen when the temple priest and the Levite traveled on that road to Jericho from Jerusalem, when given a chance to help someone who was in desperate need face-to-face. Instead of taking the time to trouble themselves with this man's troubles, they gave him a quick glance from far away, and they walked on. Granted, the temple priests were ritually pure, and they were not permitted to touch a dead body, which is probably what they thought they were looking at. At least the priest, when he, the one that was looking at a distance, he probably thought that the man laying on the road was dead because the passage says that he was half dead. Touching a dead man, or even a close to a dead man, would have ruined his day by making him ritually impure, thereby preventing him from going about his very important business for God. The Levite, on the same journey as the priest, he gets in a little closer to inspect the situation, viewing the wounded man almost face to face, but he too makes the decision to just walk on. We know that the robbed and wounded man was Jewish. So was the priest, and so was the Levite. This means that they were from the same community. It's like when an American travels to Kazakhstan and meets another American in trouble. It doesn't matter if he is a Republican from Montana and you're a Democrat from Missouri, or if you've never met before. What matters is that you're both Americans and this man is in desperate need of help. 
And I want you to imagine if you looked on from a distance and walked away, refusing to give aid, later to learn that a Shiite Muslim, discovering his plight, opened his heart and his wallet to take care of his emergency. The priest and the Levite both had the chance to do what needed to be done, but they didn't. And here is the most important thing I want you to hear this morning. Are you awake, church? If you've got a pen, you might want to write this down. When talking about the priest and the Levite, their misunderstanding, their misunderstanding of what's important, of what matters, actually gets in the way of their humanity. Their misunderstanding of what matters the most gets in the way of their compassion. And at the end of the day, Jesus says it gets in the way of their faith. They fail to see. They fail to act. They fail to feel. They turn their faces away and they keep their distance. In contrast, the Samaritan stops to assist, and the help he offers is not at a distance, it's very much up close and personal. In doing so, Jesus says, he demonstrates what genuine Christian character looks like. First, he notices the man's suffering. Then he stops, and he gets off of his donkey, He uses his own olive oil, which was not cheap. That was an expensive commodity in the Roman world. He uses his own olive oil to pour on the man's wounds. And he uses his own wine, the wine that he is carrying, as an antiseptic. He then picks the man up, (laughs) carries them to his animal, takes him to an end, then picks him up again and carries him in to the inn, which about is about, it's, it's, that's about as up close and personal as we can imagine. I mean, we're talking about being face-to-face carrying someone. You could even smell someone's stinky breath when you're carrying them somewhere, right? Just ask my wife. <laughs> and then he pays the innkeeper for two days, and he says, I'm going to come back. Imagine that. I'm not going to call. I'm not going to text. I'm not going to email. I'm going to get on my donkey, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to check on this guy. And if he needs to stay longer than a couple of days, I will pay you even more money so that he has a safe place to recover. Again, this indicates that the Samaritan didn't just reach out and help the man up close and personal one time. He kept the person in his mind, and he came back to check on him. And he did all of this for a man that he didn't even know. For a man who was, until that moment, not his neighbor. According to Jesus, this is how we are supposed to treat our neighbor. It begins with being available, and that's hard, isn't it? We are all overwhelmed and pressed for time. When we get together as leaders or people say, Mark, how can I pray for you? I say, pray for him and I because we are just overwhelmed, you know. 
Emma, Emma's got a job where she has to pretty much leave at eight and get home at six, and I work, she works the days, I work mostly nights and weekends, and so oftentimes right when she's walking in the door, I'm walking out and we're passing. And so the little time that we have is sacred, and it's very hard to make ourselves available to anyone else. We try to protect that time because we hardly see each other. But the first step is to make ourselves available. And to be available, not just at a distance, but up close and personal. And it culminates, it culminates in our offering the kind of help that demonstrates the love of God for others. So thinking about our lives, do we notice when people are struggling? And what do you think about that? We go to work, we go to Rotary, come to church, we sit next to people in our service, right? Do we even notice when the people in our orbit are struggling and suffering? And when we notice, do we make ourselves available to connect with them, to be a friend to them, even if it feels at the time like an interruption? There are people all around us in our neighborhood the people who live in the homes around our home, people in our workplace, in our school, in our circle of friends who are lonely, isolated, and sad, people who are struggling emotionally, spiritually, financially, and some people who are struggling physically. Do we notice? And are we willing to take risks because what we see the Good Samaritan doing is a huge risk because Jews and Samaritans were not supposed to interact with each other, right? They were considered to be enemies who worshiped different and different faiths, who were different ethnicities. And so for the Samaritan to reach out to this Jewish person, he was crossing cultural and social lines, political lines, religious lines in order to help. He took risks. Are we willing not only to notice people who are struggling, but to take risks to get a little more up close and personal, to offer our time, which might be the most valuable commodity for us? And do you know that when something becomes the most valuable commodity to us, it also becomes the greatest temptation for idolatry? What becomes the most important thing in our life can then become the God that determines our life. Are we willing to offer our time? Are we willing to offer kind words, thoughtful actions, a warm embrace, a comforting touch on the shoulder, or the generosity of our resources? Or do we keep people at arm's length with indifference and judgment? Do we pour salt on their wounds or do we anoint them with the oil of compassion? A Sunday school teacher was telling her class the story of the Good Samaritan, describing how he was beaten and robbed and left for dead. And she retold the situation in vivid detail so that her students could visualize the drama. Then she asked the class, if you saw a person lying on the side of the road, all wounded and bleeding, what would you do? 
And a thoughtful little girl broke the hushed silence and said, I think I'd throw up. Which is an understandable response for those of us who are a little squeamish around blood. But I think that the greater danger is not throwing up, it's giving up. It's giving up trying to help people by becoming indifferent. Being a neighbor in a postmodern culture that stresses anonymity over community, reserve over compassion, meism over otherism, challenges our commitment to Jesus when he tells us to be a good neighbor. To make things even harder, we are still dealing with a global pandemic in which we are discouraged from meeting in person, getting too close, touching each other, or sharing meals together. Many of the things that make us feel connected, supported, and loved. But despite all these challenges, Jesus tells us that we must find ways to be together and to help each other up and up close in personal ways. How can we get better at doing this given all the challenges that we are facing? And that's not a rhetorical question. I really want you to be personally thinking about that and praying about that. How can we get better at doing these kinds of more personal interactions given all the challenges that we face. As in our story, it might mean crossing social lines, cultural divides, or even political boundaries. <gasps> right? It might mean getting to know a neighbor by sharing 15 minutes across the hedge, lending a hand to a stranger, or talking to someone that you see every day that has become invisible. For some, it might mean coming back to church in person, serving in the food pantry, or just taking an extra 10 minutes after the service instead of rushing off to lunch, just taking an extra 10 minutes after the service to sit in the very comfortable new chairs in our narthex to talk to someone that you don't know, to make a new friend. Or it might mean reaching out to someone who is sitting around you, inviting them to go to lunch after church, which is something that Danny Blackburn has been encouraging us to do for the whole five years that I've been here. One of the greatest ways that we can help somebody, right? One of the greatest, most powerful ways that we can help somebody is to simply be their friend. In many ways, being a faithful follower of Jesus means being a good friend to other people and loving them in very concrete and specific ways that demonstrate how much God loves them. What Jesus is calling us to do is just to behave like good neighbors, to care enough to see the people around us, to risk engaging them, and to offer ourselves in friendship in close and up personal and up close and personal ways. And this is what the whole Bless series was about that we finished last Sunday. And I want you to imagine, I want you to really imagine, guys, like I don't come and 
I, I don't spend 20 hours a week writing these sermons so that you guys can hear a soothing voice that you know, kind of confirms what you already believe and where you can leave and feel good and not really change anything. Like, like I put a lot of effort into this. Some of you say, you're a good preacher, Mark. I said, well, thank you. I give God all the glory, but I do put in a lot of time. And the reason why is because to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean just to be really smart about the Bible or to believe the right things. It is to change our behavior so that we actually live a life that is like Jesus. And so I want to challenge you when I offer sermons, not just to think about something, but to do something different starting today. And in order to encourage you to do something starting today, I want to cast a little vision and get your creativity and your imagination going by asking, what would happen to you as an individual? And what would happen in the life of our church if we were more intentional about making ourselves available to others? by connecting or possibly reconnecting with people that God has placed in our orbit. Did you know that where you are, where God has put you in your life is not an accident? You are, God has put you where you are so that you can receive what he has to give you. You're exactly where God wants you, right? And so that means all the people in your orbit, from your spouse and your children to your extended family, to the people that you engage at work, to the people in your circle of friends, the people in your church, God has put them in your life for a reason. They are a gift. They don't exist to serve you. You exist to serve them in the name of Jesus. Right, they're a gift. And one of the first things we can do is we can awaken to gratitude for the people that God has put in our lives. Look at the people around you right now. Look at the person sitting next to you. It could be your spouse, your kid. Look at the people around you. You're not alone. God has put these people in your life to bless you and to help you grow into the vision that God has for your life. What would happen if we woke up one day and we said, oh my gosh, look at all these people around me that God has put in my life. I'm so grateful for them. They are a gift. How can I make myself available to them and connect with them in meaningful ways? What might God do in your life and in the life of our church if we were more intentional about giving our time to get together to listen to them without judgment when they open up and become vulnerable, to share meals with them, to serve them, to pray with them, and to share our story with them as a source of courage, strength, and hope. These are the kinds of things that we are going to have to do, my friends, to rebuild our lives and to rebuild our church, and it is going to involve risk. Don't forget, Jesus walked on water in a raging storm and said to Peter, get out of the boat. <laughs> you have to be willing to take a risk. And so, my prayer 
is that we will recommit ourselves to deep friendship, to real connection, to loving people as the hands and feet of Jesus. And I hope that you will begin or continue to ask God to help you to find your next step in that direction. And this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Hey everyone, this is Pastor Mark, and I want to thank you for listening today. I also want to thank First United Methodist Church of Cocoa Beach, the faith community I am honored to serve and that helps make this ministry possible. If you are being blessed by these messages, I invite you to support the mission of Jesus through the efforts of our church by making a donation. Simply go to our website, www.fumccb.com, and click on the link that says Give. I also hope that you will explore other parts of our website and connect to other ministries like online worship and Bible studies. If you feel more comfortable, you can also mail a donation to the church office at 3300 North Atlantic Avenue, Cocoa Beach, Florida, 32931. We sincerely appreciate your support as we try to help people who are struggling and need to hear good news. Again, thanks for tuning in today, and may God bless you.